Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here today. And for those of you joining us at home, we're glad that you're here as well. And again, I want to say if you've got any prayer requests, is there anything we can be praying for you about, feel free to include that uh, in the comments below that live feed that you're getting there online. So at Christmas time, uh, there was nothing better than to have a big roaring fire uh, there near the Christmas tree in our living room. It was just kind of completed the picture. Now, in order to do that, that meant firewood needed to be brought in, and that was my job. I was about five, six years old. I'd go out of the wood pile behind the garage, and I'd carry it into the house. Well, that meant splinters. Now, whenever I would get a splinter as a kid, honestly, I'd go to my dad, and I'd tell him, Dad, I got a, I got a splinter. He'd have a little glimmer in his eye. And he'd pull out that case pocket knife that he always had in his pocket. And he'd say, well, son, I can get that right out of there. Well, see, that was, it was a little concerning. The smile and things that he had before he would take that splinter out. You know, I don't know if he had secretly wanted to be a surgeon or not, but he enjoyed getting that splinter out. And, and if the splinter was already hurting, I would come to him and say, and, and my first response is, well, don't touch it. Is this going to hurt? Well, son, it may just hurt for a second. It's going to hurt a lot worse if you just leave the splinter in there. Well, I, I didn't want that to hurt. I didn't want my ouch at that moment to cause more pain as he would take out the splinter. But that's what it was going to take if the splinter was going to get taken out of the finger. That little bit of surgery he was going to have to do on that thumb or index finger to get it out. Mike Huckabee, the former president, uh, former president, former guy that ran for president, that's what I'm trying to say, wherever that is, candidate, presidential candidate, uh, he had a similar story that he told about his son in the backyard. And his son had a similar reaction that I did to my dad in getting a splinter removed. And he would say, son, don't you trust me? I'm not gonna cut your finger off. I'm here to help you. Just be still and relax. Then he goes on to say, I think sometimes God in heaven must look down upon us. And we must be a little like a child who says, God, I'm hurt. God, help me. God reaches in to help us. But the first thing we say is, God, don't touch me. Don't do that, God. God is saying, but I've got to reach in there and deal with the hurt. It may hurt a little. But I've got to do it. We say, no, God, please, nothing like that. He goes on to say, here we are fighting with God. It's the equivalent of being in surgery. When the surgeon has both arms in you, in your abdomen, up to his elbows, and suddenly you decide you're going to raise up on the operating table and decide that you don't want to be operated on. How many times in life do we find ourselves doing this? We're in the process. God has brought painful circumstances into our lives. He's doing his work on us, on this surgery table of the Almighty. And we want to wake up and say, God, I don't want you to do this. Let me out of here. God loves us. But sometimes God has got to do this surgery on us as he's transforming us into the people he wants us to be. And that's a painful process that I want to talk about this morning. How do I accept God's transforming love? How do I deal with this difficult 
circumstance that God has divinely placed me into that he wants me in for my own betterment. The passage I want to talk about this morning is Malachi. It's Malachi chapter 2, 17. We'll read through chapter 3, verse 5. It's a pretty short section. And if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Malachi 2, 17, 3, 5. <clears throat> you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You may be seated. Again, here we are. I can't. I swear it almost seems like we were in Christmas like three months ago. But here we are. The, the lights are up. We've got the trees up. And we're in our Christmas season once again. And we're going back in the Old Testament talking about people who were looking forward to better days to come. It was a dark time in Israel. It was a dark time last week when we were talking about the book of Jeremiah. That weeping prophet who were warning people about the surrounding Babylonians. And this week we're in this book not often looked at. I probably should give you more time to find it when I told you what the reference was to the passage today. That last book in the Old Testament, Malachi. And we see a group of people who are not in the distress that the people were in last week. As a matter of fact, things had been going pretty good for the Israelites when we get to the book of Malachi. And they were getting sloppy in what they were doing in their worship of God. So they needed a wake-up call, which is what they get in this passage today. Now, if you go way back to the beginning of the book of Malachi, in the very beginning, God makes it clear his feelings towards the Israelites. He says, I have loved you. There is the starting point for everything that happens in the book of Malachi. God loves these people dearly, just like he loves you and I, but the people don't see it that way. So I want to talk through the subject this morning like this. We're going to talk about God's love, but God's love is a transforming love. And we'll see that God's love is intended to bring holiness that then results in peace. And I want to talk about that accepting this refinement process, this transformation that we are all in. This process of sanctification that we call it here in the New Testament in Christianese. It's just the process of God making us more like his son, Jesus Christ. That's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to give you some background first, though. 
Um, before we get to the reading we had today, I want to back up and get the big picture of Malachi's story, because just like Jeremiah, he's a real historical figure. Malachi was a prophet that was designated to be the, the voice of God to the people of Israel. Jeremiah had told the people, you are faithless and you're about to go into exile. That happened around 586. And then the Babylonians broke through the walls of the city. They captured the king, King Zedekiah. If he would have just relented and done what God told him to, he could have spared himself a lot of pain. As it turns out, Zedekiah's sons were killed before him and his eyes were gouged out as he was taken into exile. And then... Years later, we see the people coming out of exile. About 50 years, as a matter of fact, 50 years to the day, 536 B.C., 50,000 Jews are going to return to their homeland. That would take about 20 years, that return in all, but they finally uh, got back. They finished the temple about 515 B.C., and it's hard for us to understand how important the temple was to the Israelites, but that was God's presence among them. He dwelt there among them in the Holy of Holies, so a lot was revealed to the Israelites through the temple. His glory was there. His presence was there. So they rebuild the temple, and about 60 years later, another wave of exiles come in, and they were going to beautify the temple. So the temple's been rebuilt. It's been beautified. And then we come to the book of Malachi. A hundred years later have passed since those first exiles came home. The temple's rebuilt. And instead of sort of just dwelling with joy and obedience in the land, that's not what they're doing at all. It's funny, when we get comfortable, this is what tends to happen. Instead of bringing their best animals for the sacrifice, for example, they're bringing weak and sickly animals. They're being complacent and sloppy in their approach to God. At one point, Malachi says in chapter 1, verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God is not at all happy with these people. It kind of reminds me of when my mom would say, you know, I'm glad when two people who are just awful to each other find each other. That way they only ruin one house instead of two. That's kind of what's going on here. If they just stay in their own house and just ruin that one instead of coming to the Lord's house and ruining that one. But don't forget how this book starts. That's key. That God has loved them. And that brings us to our text this morning. What is it that God's love is going to do to these people? What's the ultimate plan and first we see that God's love brings holiness. God's love brings holiness. Look at how the people of God are misinterpreting his actions, starting there in verse 17. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is, is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Boy, that's a dangerous question to ask. And God's tired of hearing it. You know, it's kind of like if you see a parent with a really active, talkative toddler, and they finally, almost in a joking way, just look at him and say, where's your off button? You know, just kind of pushing on here and there. I, I just get the sense that God is saying, well, where's your off button? Because I'm tired of hearing this. 
You're wearying me with this, this junk. You're misinterpreting me altogether, questioning my justice. Now, why bad things happen to good people and why good things happen to bad people? It's an age-old question. It's dealt with in several places in the Old Testament. The entire book of Job is really grappling with that issue. Job, the most righteous man, why are these horrible things happening to him? It's the question that people are grappling with here in the text. They're weary in God. They say they want justice. That brings us to verse 1 of chapter 3, because they're going to get what they want. And verse 1 references the coming of two people. It references one who's going to come and ready the way for the next person God himself is going to come. The first person is a reference. It's a foretelling of the coming of John the Baptist. And Christ verifies this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10. He quotes Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And says, this is the person that was foretold that would come and ready the way. For me. Then in Luke chapter 1, uh, you see those uh, events of Christmas unfolding. An angel comes to a man named Zachariah and says, Your wife Elizabeth, who's barren, is going to have a child. And then an angel comes to Mary and says, Mary, you found favor with the Lord. You're going to have a child. She said, How is this going to happen? I'm a virgin. One of the signs given to Mary was the pregnancy of Elizabeth, who was of old age, who was barren. And whenever Mary, in her excitement, went to Elizabeth, John the Baptist leapt for joy in hearing Mary's voice. It all happens right there in Luke chapter 11. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 1. John the Baptist will get to the temple being conceived first before Jesus. That's what's being told here. These were the signs of the Messiah's birth. The people are going to get their Savior. The people are going to get their justice. But look at verses 2 and 3. This is where it gets interesting. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So what does that mean? What does that mean? It means he's going to make his people holy. Through this refining process, and notice he starts with silver. By the way, just to be clear, that final question is not part of the text itself. That's something I added on there. But why silver? You know, silver's called out here. Why not gold? Gold was more precious. It's interesting. Gold is mentioned later, later but, but silver is mentioned first probably because the process of refining silver is actually much more difficult than the process of refining gold. As a matter of fact, a man named Robinson talks about this processing of silver. He says, when the silver becomes molten, it gives off some 20 times its own volume of oxygen with a noticeable hissing and bubbling. This phenomenon is known as spitting, but the task is not yet finished. Unless the molten silver is treated with carbon, charcoal was used by the ancients, the silver reabsorbs oxygen from the air and loses its sheen and purity. This is a pretty 
violent process. You know, you start getting it really hot, and the, the metal starts to hiss, and it starts to spit, and you've got to stand out of the way, or it'll hiss, and it'll spit on you. But you know, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, you know, my reaction to what happens in my life is not so different. I don't always like the circumstances I'm placed in. Frankly, I think all of us would say, maybe we're in circumstances now we're not real happy with. Nobody's excited about a pandemic. Not, e not even, people don't even agree over whether or not it's a pandemic. And yet here we are. Do we kick against God himself when these kind of circumstances come? We're being made more in the image of God. And, and it, we're not just melted down and then reformed. That's not all that happens. The other part is this fuller's soap. Now, the job of a fuller was to take the wool that had been taken off of a sheep and give it its first scrubbing. And it was when it was its nastiest. This is when the fleas and the ticks and the dirt that had been accumulated in that wool for all that time that the sheep had had it, this is the first rinsing to get it all out. And the purpose was to get that wool prepared so something could be made out of it. That was the job of the fuller. And God is saying, look, I'm not just going to make, I'm going to make you a new person, and I'm going to make you useful to the kingdom. By the way, that soap, that first batch of soap was some of the harshest soap that was ever used on wool. As a matter of fact, not many people wanted to be a fuller. It wasn't a pleasant job. We can't expect the refining process to always be a pleasant process. As God's making us into someone we would never be otherwise. But see, the thing is, when we come to Christ, when you gave your life to Christ, and I pray here that, that everyone here has, if you've not given yourself to Christ, if you don't even know what that means, come talk to me at the end. I'm happy to show you what the scriptures say about how to surrender your life to Christ. But when you came to Christ, you gave it all. You may not have realized it, but there was no part of you that was going to be held back. God wouldn't be satisfied unless he had everything. There's a story that C.S. Lewis tells about a toothache. And he said that whenever I was a child and I'd get a toothache, he said I'd want to go and I'd want to talk to my mother about it. Because my mother would give me some aspirin. It would help the pain to go away. It would help me go to sleep. But then he said, but there was this other thing that could happen. She may give me the medicine. She may help me get to sleep. But the next morning, in all likelihood, she was going to take me to the dentist. Now, he has a lot to say about dentists. Now, you're talking, you know, the, the 30s here, the 1930s, 20s, if not before that, the early 1900s. You can imagine what dentistry was like. And he would say this. Uh, I, I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I didn't want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew they'd started fiddling with all sorts of other teeth, which had not yet begun to ache. 
They would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they'd take a mile. Then he goes on to say, now if I may put it that way, our Lord is like the dentists. If you give him an inch, he will take a mile. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some one particular sin which they are ashamed of, like lust or cowardice, which is obviously spoiling daily life, like a bad temper, or he mentions drunkenness. Well, he will cure it all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you ask, but if you once call him in, he will give you the full treatment. God's love is going to bring this kind of holiness. It doesn't just bring holiness, by the way, this love of God. It also results in peace. It also results in peace. I'm going to be talking about peace more fully here in a few weeks, but I do want to talk about this, this product of God's love. In verses 3 through 5, it speaks of these pleasing sacrifices that people will bring to God. Because they were doing a miserable job of it, and it was affecting their worship. And we no longer bring sacrifices to God in terms of animals, right? We don't, don't do church that way. We do something different. Romans 12, 1, it says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Again, this theme of what, of what God wants from us. Now, that's kind of an unsettling thing, that he's going to take my whole self, and it sounds like a steep price, but this is the only way. There's a guy, you may have heard of him, uh, Nick, I believe it's pronounced Vujicic is his name, Nick Vujicic. Uh, he's Australian, he was born with no arms and, and no legs. And a lot of people um, struggled with being around him, he would talk about, because they didn't know quite how to sympathize with him. Um, he struggled himself emotionally and physically to accept this condition he was in. But today, he's a follower of Jesus Christ. He's a fantastic speaker. And he has what he would call a ridiculously good life. And he said, when people read about my life or witness me living it, he said, they're prone to congratulate me for being victorious over my disabilities. But then he goes on to say this. I tell them that my victory came in surrender. It comes every day when I acknowledge that I can't do this on my own, so I say to God, I give it to you. Once I yielded, the Lord took my pain and turned it into something good. He gave my life meaning, and when no one and nothing else could provide it. And if God can take someone like me, someone without arms and legs, and use me as his hands and feet, he can use anybody. It's not about ability. The only thing God needs from you is a willing heart. By the way, that's what you bring to the table with God. You bring willingness. That's it. You are willing to go through the process, this transforming love that we're talking about this morning. If you want peace and you want purpose, you offer yourself to God. So then, how do we do this? How do we go about accepting this transforming love that God gives us? Because it's difficult. I want to suggest three things. First of all, we need to be patient. Uh, patient. You know, this, this smelting and this forging process, the cooling process of the metal is as important as the heating process. 
and the metal workers discovered <coughs> that changes occur in the metal itself during the cooling. Uh, and if the cool down is too fast, these little cracks will appear in the metal. And then somewhere down the road, that crack might cause a catastrophic accident. You can, imagine, you can imagine in the process of making aircraft metal, the danger in messing this process up. So they put it in a, in a bath and get it to the right temperature. And then it's allowed to cool slowly in the air until it reaches room temperature. And the waiting is essential in the process. Because see, you and I, we also go through these cool down periods. These times when God is building into our lives qualities that are going to make us effective for his ultimate use for us. That's why it's so important. When we circumvent the process, and we do this by sinning, it's when we sin, we, we reach and grab and get things in, that we want on our own terms. That's when we mess up the cooling process. God requires patience from us. We need to wait. We wait for a spouse. We wait for Christmas morning. Don't go peeking. We be patient. And then secondly, extend unconditional love. Extend unconditional love. In 1 John 1.19, it says, We love because he first loved us. So see, the best evidence of accepting the kind of love that God gives us is extending that love to other people. Uh, and this is the kind of love that we get. It is unconditional. It's a love that cannot be returned. It doesn't require that you meet some kind of criteria in order to, to earn it. Uh, not by looks or intelligence or whatever. If someone were to ask you, someone who's extending you unconditional love, you ask them, why do you love me? You know what their response is going to be? I love you because I love you. I'm not going to give you a reason why I love you. I love you because I love you. So nothing you're going to do is make that love stop happening. That's a forgiving kind of love. It's not dependent on the actions of the others. And it's harder to accept than you may think it is. I came across a story of a family who adopted an older child. The child had been in an unspeakable uh, orphanage situation in another country. They brought her to their home. One of the things they told her is, we expect you to keep your room clean each day. When she heard about that responsibility, she fixated on it and thought, okay, this is how I'm going to earn their love. And so the family would come into her room in the morning, and she said that her room was absolutely immaculate. And one time she sat on the bed and she said, my room is clean, can I stay? Do you still love me? It broke the parent's heart. Eventually she learned to to hear her parents' words, that they unconditionally loved her, that they were never going to leave her. She wasn't a visitor trying to earn her place in the family. And after she knew that, that she was this inseparable part of the family story, even correction and discipline did not cause her to question her family's love for her. She understood that correction and discipline was part of what it meant to be in the family. 
See, this is that refinement process. This is you and me receiving correction and discipline as God makes us into someone that we would never be otherwise. And then finally, reflect the, reflect the refiner. Reflect the, refi the refiner. You know, that last step in the process of refinement would be this polishing process. And the metallurgist or the person working the metal would polish and polish and polish that metal until they could look down and they could see their own reflection in the metal. That was when they knew it was truly purified. See, that's what's going with us. That's what's happening with us. God is going to continue shining us until he looks and he sees his own reflection in the metal that he's working on, you and I. We are meant to reflect the image of God. So we reflect those results of the refiner. So putting this all together, endure God's process to be God's person. Endure God's process to be God's person. You know, mountain climbers, they could save a lot of time and energy if they would just get into a helicopter and somebody take them to the top of the mountain. Um, but that's not the point. The point is the process. It's the character and the discipline that are built as they're climbing. You know, God could create scientists. He could just create musicians, people that would just come out of the womb doing those things, but that's just not how God works. These people become these things through a very long process. You and I end up reflecting the image of God after he takes us through this difficult purification process. That happens in our professional lives. It happens in our spiritual lives. And these qualities are made through some form of suffering. Please pray with me. Lord, Almighty One, we trust our lives, we trust our entire selves to your process. Lord, understanding that to live in a fallen world, to be made in your image, and to be continually purified, it involves pain. God, I pray that we would not, in our own power, try to circumvent your process. Lord, you've given us the means to the satisfaction that you intend us to have. And I pray that we wouldn't seek for it in some kind of sinful way. I pray that we would fully surrender ourselves to you, Lord. Even in that act of communion that we're about to partake in, God, I pray that we would understand that you yourself are not immune to the pain that comes as a result of sin. As you, Father, willingly sacrificed your own son, and you, Lord Jesus, willingly became a human so that you could pay for the sins of mankind. Be with us now as we enter into this time. In the name of Jesus, we pray.